What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I trust that you had a great holiday break, but we are back with two episodes this week here uh, on Open Floor. We appreciate all the loyal Open Floor Globe members for emailing us in all of their takes over the last holiday week. Just some phenomenal emails uh, that, that have continued to come uh, despite us taking a little bit of a hiatus last week. So I greatly appreciate that. But Michael, what I thought we would do here is kind of pick up the pieces, right? Uh, we both watched the Christmas Day games very intently, uh, the quintuple header. And there's been some other interesting games here over the last couple of days as well. So what I thought we would do is is pull together maybe 10 post-Christmas takeaways, uh, you know, featuring or tangentially uh, referencing the 10 teams that played on Christmas, because obviously a lot of those teams are going to be factoring in pretty heavily to the uh, the playoff picture as we go forward. And I think there's no better place to start than the headline game between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, I was there. It's the second time those two teams have uh, faced off this season. The Clippers won again. They simply executed better down the stretch, really offensively and defensively. LeBron did not quite look right. Uh, he was said afterwards he was dealing with uh, you know a groin issue, um, but uh, you know Kawhi Leonard you know ultimately went up 2-0 on LeBron. I believe it was the most watched game uh, of the season and one of the most watched ever, um, you know, on on Christmas Day ABC uh, broadcast. So from the league standpoint, the rating standpoint, uh, I think that was probably some welcome news. But I ask you, Michael, what was your big post-Christmas takeaway from that game? Was it Kyle Kuzma going crazy off the bench? Uh, was it the question marks <laughs> around Lou Williams? Or, or where did your eyes settle as you were watching that one? So I wrote a piece uh, a day before the Christmas Day games about Kawhi Leonard and basically why I think he's the best basketball player uh, on the planet and has been oh. for a couple of years. So you're and trying so, to call your shot. I see how yeah. it is. Yeah. And yeah, the timing, I mean, couldn't be any more perfect. I mean, he had 35, 12, and 5, guarded LeBron down the stretch in the fourth quarter, uh, scored Michael. 11... The one thing I'd warn you, if you're going to pat yourself on the back, you got to be careful for the shoulder sprains, okay? It's a very common uh, injury <laughs> among especially NBA podcasters. It, it can happen to the best of us. No, my head is so big that it's actually, I'm actually conducting this podcast upside down. I can't really balance <laughs> myself right now. So, <laughs> so no, I mean, uh, Kawhi, he just, he gave you everything that you want out of a franchise player in that game. And I mean, it, my piece is basically about trying to separate the MVP discussion from the best, the, the you know, the subjective best player alive crown that we haven't really had to give to anyone for almost the entire decade because LeBron's had it for that long. But, you know, Kawhi, you just look at how complete he is, how he can score from all three levels, how difficult he is to game plan out of a playoff series. Uh, you know, defensively, just as an example from that one game, I mean, he's picking LeBron up almost as soon as LeBron passes half court. Like, the respect level was very low for, you know, King James, and he wanted it. He looked like an alpha predator, and I feel like the, you know, the load manage. he's the face of load management, which is uh, kind of a shame and kind of prevents him from actually ever winning MVP so long as he chooses not to compete in back-to-backs. But when the chips are down, I would rather have no player alive on my team than Kawhi Leonard. 
Yeah, it's a, a compelling argument. You laid it out great there, and, and also in your piece. Another interesting Kawhi Leonard take I read recently was from Paolo Ugetti of The Ringer, who basically stressed this idea of like, look, load management has negative connotations, right? But Kawhi has pretty much now load managed his entire life, whether it's uh, you know how he uh, conserves energy during a game, when he steps forward, which games he decides to you know really go all out. Because um, I do think that his effort level uh, and his performance, you know, varies, you know, pretty uh, you know, considerably on a night to night basis. And yet I think he's reaching a similar conclusion maybe that you did, which is Kawhi's peak levels are extraordinarily high and he gets there extraordinarily often, not necessarily on command every single time, but an awful lot. I mean, he went to those levels consistently throughout the playoffs. There's no question about it. He went to that level on opening night against LeBron, where he was the best player on the court. He outlasted LeBron. And then I thought he went there again on Christmas. And I'm not really sure how you debate that. If you're saying whose offense came easier in that game, Kawhi Leonard's or LeBron's there's no question Kawhi is getting to his spots he's getting to those uh, turnaround mid-range jumpers he's getting into the paint for those hanging extra half second uh, you know face-up shots he's doing pretty much what he wants and he's attracting a lot of attention uh, along the way conversely LeBron's struggling with his outside shot he wasn't really getting downhill Uh, like you mentioned it did seem like he needed some help in terms of just dealing with Kawhi's defensive pressure, whether that's bringing in Rondo, uh, you know, especially down the stretch for some ball handling or some of the other decisions the Lakers made from a lineup standpoint. It seemed like they were compensating uh, from that from that side. And then LeBron going to the basket, it just really wasn't a major factor in that game. You can chalk it up to the uh, groin if you like, but the fact remains, you know, Kawhi outplayed him, you know, to me pretty considerably on both offense and defense. And this raises a, an interesting question, because if we're going to say that Kawhi is the best player alive, like you're uh, arguing or you're asserting, mm-hmm. that means if they face off in the playoffs, Kawhi will need to be the best player in that playoff series to kind of prove that title, right? And I was kind of racking my brain. I think the last time LeBron was in a playoff series that he wasn't the best player was the 2011 finals. Wouldn't you say in terms of being the most, the best all-around force, the the biggest all-around impact? I mean, even in those finals against the Warriors where Kevin Durant was sensational, mm-hmm. I think if you flipped LeBron and KD, uh, you know, I think Kevin on the the Cavaliers would have struggled more than LeBron did and, and probably would have won fewer cumulative games in those situations. So, you know, what we're, what we're describing here in terms of passing the baton to Kawhi potentially it's really a long-term era uh, that is is flipping. I mean, that's eight years basically of playoff series where LeBron was the, uh, you know, was the top dog. And I guess what you're forecasting is if the Clippers meet the the Lakers in the playoffs, you expect Kawhi to to have that mantle and for that series to revolve around Kawhi. I I do, and I mean the impetus for the piece was actually. Uh, the Lakers-Bucks game on TNT last Thursday. Giannis Antetokounmpo's Bucks beat LeBron's Lakers in a, a, I mean, it was basically a wire-to-wire romp. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a blowout necessarily, but I think the Bucks had that one in hand. And down the stretch, after Giannis hit a three that basically put the game away, you know, he, he motions to his his bench that, you know, he's ramming a, a, an imaginary crown on top of his head. And no, that was the signature moment of the entire NBA season and the signature moment of Giannis Inc. How provocative sure. was that from Giannis? And I think what your question is, 
did he put the crown on the wrong head? Should Giannis have been crowning Kawhi? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, yeah, I think that we, if you go, I mean, we can't, we can't forget what happened in last year's Eastern Conference Finals, where the Bucks are up 2-0 and then lose four straight right after Nick Nurse decides to put Kawhi Leonard on Giannis. I feel like that gets overlooked a little bit, maybe. I mean, uh, you, you, Kawhi has the crown. Like, he won the championship. He was the finals MVP. He averaged over 30 points per game throughout the entire postseason, shooting 49% from the field. Like, he was incredible. And he was doing it basically hobbling throughout stretches. Uh, it was just a, a ridiculous run. So I'm of the mind that when you do something like that and then you come back and you're on a different team in a different system, different teammates, different coaches, and you improve your playmaking, you improve your ball handling, uh, your usage is incredibly high, your numbers are still really stellar. You know, they're not what Giannis's are, Harden's are, or LeBron's are right now. But when you do all that, I, I just don't see how you can take away what Kawhi accomplished. And the thing about Giannis is that, you know, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, and maybe this is a good segue, but, you know, Giannis on, on Christmas Day against the Philadelphia 76ers showed his flaws to me. I mean, Giannis doesn't have the pull-up 15-footer that Kawhi can get to anytime he wants. You can now game look, plan and get... Look, what, Michael, <laughs> Giannis Am is going to have to no, you're going to have to go into full-fledged damage control here. There's no question about it. I mean, that's how rough that Christmas Day game was from Giannis. But let's stick here real quick okay. um, on the Kawhi side of things because you're raising interesting points. I think, uh, first of all, I agree that the general discussion about Kawhi does not give him enough credit for a couple of reasons. First, people don't love him. He does not have, because he's, you know, positioned himself as this kind of black box type guy where he's very difficult to read and everything else, he does not have the legions of fans, the passionate diehards that a lot of other superstar level players have, especially guys like LeBron and Steph Curry. So I think that hurts um, for sure. I think the other thing that hurts is he doesn't care about the consistency factor night to night in ways that some other guys really have uh, even you know recently when we're looking at MVP level players whether it's Harden, Giannis, Curry, LeBron, Kevin Durant over the last five years even Westbrook during his MVP season the consistency factor of just always being able to do it no matter who the opponent is no matter if it's a back-to-back or whatever else has been valued by all of those players sort of at their peak levels but not by Kawhi because he believes, and I think the people close to him, they, they believe they've kind of you know, hacked the matrix, right? They found a better way to do it, and maybe his body can't hold up uh, to that same approach of, of playing 82 games and, and uh, you know, maxing out during the regular season. And as you're pointing out, their approach was validated during last year's playoffs, and it could easily be validated again uh, you know, during this year's playoffs. I think Kawhi deserves more credit for rising to the moment in some of these big uh, head-to-head showdowns. Uh, certainly he should be crowned 2-0 over LeBron. And it was, you know, pretty clean victories on both ends. At the same time, though, I understand why people are a little bit reluctant to want to go all in and agree with you on your take. Because, uh, like, even the next game he plays against the Utah Jazz, uh, which I went to over this weekend, I think he might have been dealing with the flu. There was some talk about the Clippers dealing with the flu. Um, But he's just not engaged on the same level in that game as he was on the Christmas Day game, right? Like we give him more, we need to give him more credit for ramping up in the big moments, 
But I also do think we have to hold him a little bit accountable for not uh, necessarily being at that level night to night because it looks very different. The impact is very different. And they got outshot down the stretch by the Utah Jazz and they kind of lost going away there. Um, and that is not just anecdotal, right? I mean, I think that there's a reason why Kawhi's you know, overall statistics aren't as spectacular as the other guys because he builds in you know, a lot of quote-unquote nights off for himself over the course of the season, even when he is playing too. Yeah, and I mean, it's fortunate, first of all, that my piece did not come out before that Jazz game because I was watching that game and I mean, all he was doing was shooting jumpers and they weren't going in, which is just a worst case scenario for his game and, and how he wants to play. Uh, but the thing about him that's so interesting is if you look at the numbers, like he's not going to the rim this year. It's all just these pull-ups. A lot of them are contested. He think he leads the league in pull-up contested long twos. You know, he, he'll shoot the occasional three if wide open, but he doesn't hunt it out. He just kind of moves along at his own pace. And, you know, like you said, he... He he doesn't, you know. He, I don't want to say he takes possessions off per se, but you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo is attacking the rim relentlessly. James Harden is is going to his step back and he's attacking the rim, getting to the free throw line. Kawhi's just like, I don't want to put my body through that. It's the regular season, and I see the criticism of why someone would be frustrated from the night-to-night inconsistencies, but I also see that, you know, this is a player who's making no bones about it. He he values the playoffs, and he doesn't really value the regular season in the same way that others do, and I, I tip my cap to that. Yeah, look, I mean, he's definitely embodying the whole idea of, like, you know, play smarter, not harder, right? I think that's sort of his entire approach, basically, within a game, over the course of a month, over the course of a season, over the course of his career, right? Like, I think that philosophy is sort of what's driving his approach to everything, it's all aligned, you know, on a possession basis, on a game basis, on a monthly basis, on a season basis, on a, you know, career basis. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear what he's doing. And uh, I respect him for that. I think it works for him. But I also am not shocked that some fans or even people maybe like myself who were raised on the Michael Jordan school of just, you know, like, you know, like you're describing, know tearing guys heads off you know wanting to do it every single night like Giannis does where that might be off-putting to them and they might never embrace Kawhi like I could see Kawhi being a guy uh you know in a different way than Durant but similar to Durant in that they never totally get their just due like I feel like Durant was uh underrated throughout his prime because he was in LeBron's shadow um and because the move to Golden State was so polarizing that people focused solely on what he was doing off the court as a free agent, as opposed to what he was doing on the court on a night to night basis. I think a similar thing could happen with Kawhi, where, uh, you know, people focus on, uh, you know, the statistical output um, or the missed games um, or the load management controversy, as opposed to what he's doing in the biggest moments when he's rising up often against top competition. I think that the Kevin Durant point is really sound because for so long he was the number two guy. Like he was the heir apparent. And, you know, this was the time in his career where he was going to elevate and exceed LeBron, whether it be in Brooklyn or wherever, uh, wherever he chose to play. But, you know, the Achilles kind of obviously, you know, ruined that for him. And it's unfortunate. He was in the process of doing it, right? I guess oh, that for Clipper sure. series, the 50-point games. I mean, Definitely. even when he comes back and he scares the Raptors on one leg. Um, but that story got ruined, and Kawhi has capitalized. Yeah. So, bottom line, Kawhi, best player alive. But 
it's 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 interesting just because I, f- I feel like he's operating three millimeters to the right of everybody else and that's his right and it speaks to just you know how painful an 82 game season is and his approach is his approach and we'll see what happens in the playoffs but I I, I just think that when you know a, a label like that you have it has to be something something drastic needs to happen for you to lose the crown and we'll see what happens in the postseason this year but I don't anticipate Kawhi Leonard losing it anytime soon. All right, let's look at this uh, this Christmas game between the Lakers and Clippers from the other side. Brandon from L.A., who writes in and clarifies he's not a Lakers fan, uh, he writes, it was just two weeks, two weeks or so ago that everyone around the league started asking if the Lakers were an all-time great team. Not sure how anyone could ask that question of a team that had played less than 30 games or a squad that hasn't even won a title together, but the world loves to overreact to LeBron-led teams. So do the Lakers look like an all-time great team to you guys? Do all-time great teams ever lose four games in a row? Is the Lakers' four-game losing streak a sign of bigger issues in L.A.? So just real uh, quick point of clarification. Uh, the Lakers were without LeBron at, at one point during that four-game losing streak, uh, without Anthony Davis at another point, and then I think Kyle Kuzma missed a couple games. They are now back on the winning ways um, you know, after that streak here over the last couple of nights. But, Michael, uh, what was your takeaway from the Lakers side of things uh, from the Christmas Day game? And are you scared off from their all-time greatness uh, like Brandon is? (laughs) I don't really know what all-time greatness is uh, after 30-some-odd games. I mean, they are in first in the Western Conference. And as you said, they've kind of righted the ship after that Christmas Day loss to the Clippers. there was that brief moment where they were like on pace for 70 wins, you know, sure, where people sure. okay. really got a little bit too aggressively ramping up. And <laughs> I'll be honest, like I started daydreaming about a possible Giannis versus LeBron, you know, 2020 finals matchup, you know, small market versus big market. I mean, it's natural, which could still happen. It could still happen. But as Brandon's point is, are we seeing some of the Lakers warts? Right. Uh, I mean, the thing about the Lakers, I mean, they're defensively, they exceeded all expectations heading into the season, and I thought that they could be maybe historic on that end, just from how they were playing in the first month, six weeks of the of the season. They've slipped to eighth on that end, which is a little discouraging. Uh, their half-court offense has been just slightly above league average, which is not great. I mean, a lot of their success is in transition, those kick-aheads that LeBron gives to AD. I mean, if you watch the game against the Mavericks, he's just basically playing quarterback to wide receiver. That's a fundamental tenement of how they want to attack their opponent, and it's it goes back to how the Pelicans and Alvin Gentry used Anthony Davis when he was in New Orleans. Uh, but I, I wonder just what this team will look like in the playoffs uh, when... Uh, you know, you're forced to be in the half court a lot more often when teams are going small and they're spacing you out and you're, they're playing JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard off the floor and just what this team looks like with AD at the five and LeBron at the four and and whether or not they have enough shot creation. And so I, I think there are question marks for sure with this Lakers team. It's definitely too early to call them an all-time great squad. They've been tremendous. They could go to the finals. Uh, I think that they are in need of an upgrade in certain areas of their roster, and it'll also be interesting to see if AD is willing to accept the fact that he is a center, and I, you know, he's yet to embrace that position, which when he is at the five, the Lakers are, look unbeatable. 
So that was my big takeaway from the Christmas Day game. Uh, they were big uh, with about seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. I believe it was Paul George who kind of strung Dwight Howard out on the perimeter, hits a three-pointer over the top of him, and pretty soon after that, Vogel pulls Dwight Howard to kind of go to a smaller lineup. You know, it was tied with five minutes to go. Both teams were playing small. You thought, okay, this is Anthony Davis's moment where LeBron's not shooting very well. He's got Montrez Harrell and a bunch of other small guys, uh, you know, around the basket. It's time for AD to take over and really do this thing. And, and this is going to be kind of like the late game showcase. And instead, the Lakers' small lineup really was disappointing on both sides. I think they settled for a lot of three-pointers. As I mentioned, LeBron didn't get into the paint really at all. There was a couple of ugly turnovers uh, that, that fouled things up. And they they did go ISO with AD twice. Uh, he hit a tough turnaround once, and then he went for another mid-range jumper over uh, Montrez Harrell, kind of settling again, not really being that force going to the basket that you would like to see in those situations. So uh, I thought the first look at the real test of that small lineup and kind of a high-pressure moment against a team that loves to play small and is very switchable with the Clippers did not go very well for the Lakers. I think it could go better uh, in the future, for sure. But it was just kind of your your December 25th milepost moment uh, left something be, to be desired. And kind of the same thing on the defensive end. You saw some fundamental problems with their personnel in terms of who was guarding Kawhi. They had to have Danny Green on him, right? They're not using LeBron on that matchup. Danny Green gets two very cheap fouls, sending Kawhi Leonard to the free throw line four times late in that game. And those points wound up being a major difference between the two teams uh, late in that game. So I think that's the tricky part for them is the matchup game against the Clippers. I think they can pretty much play their big lineups against almost anybody else in the West with the possible exception of Houston other than the Clippers. But I think the lineup issues are really going to come through. Uh, if they do have to face the Clippers, uh, you know, potentially in the Western Conference Finals or somewhere else uh, down the line. You know, one of the really big, most interesting things about this matchup is, you know, I was watching down the stretch when Kawhi was guarding LeBron and the Clippers don't need to help in situations where LeBron has the ball and Kawhi is on him, which is something, it's rare. I mean, one of LeBron's great attributes one of the things that makes him such an unbelievable player is when he's isolated or when he's posting someone up you have to send help and then he kicks to a three-point shooter that's just that's what makes him so special and if you are able to guard him one-on-one as the Clippers are with Kawhi without dramatic help you know I don't really (laughs) that's just you're in trouble basically because uh, you know, Kawhi is a, a a force on the defensive end, and there were those possessions that you're referring to where AD, uh, you know, they go to AD and he doesn't have the type of success you want, but I think a big reason that they did that was because they couldn't go to LeBron down the stretch, be it he was a little bit banged up, but I think more importantly, Kawhi was on him and completely shutting him down. I mean, everybody remembers that, that video that went viral like probably five or six years ago in the finals oh, between so the, Spur- yeah. the Spurs and the Heat, right, where LeBron's looking over, seeing Kawhi Leonard checking in, and just gets this look <laughs> on his face like, oh, God, not this guy. I'm still seeing some of that between these two players, right? And uh, certainly Kawhi defends LeBron better than vice versa. And I almost wonder if his whole approach to that game was influenced by the Kawhi you know, on-ball defense factor, right? Um, now I would like to see him fully healthy, no excuses, you know, you know, in mid season shape and all that stuff before we say that, like, you know, 
LeBron can no longer handle a one-on-one matchup with Kawhi Leonard, but I see a very cool, calm confidence from Kawhi Leonard in that matchup. You don't see the happy feet. It seems like he has a pretty good understanding of where LeBron wants to go, all of LeBron's pet moves. Uh, and he does, you know, not panic when he's in that one-on-one island type situation like so many defenders, even, you know, above average perimeter defenders uh, do when they get matched up with LeBron. So uh, fascinating thing to watch uh, as we go forward. Hey, what's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver. No matter what your resolution or goal is this year, you'll find the perfect audiobook at Audible to motivate and inspire you. Whether it's getting physically fit, financially fit, or being a better parent, leader, or person, it's all on Audible. And to help motivate you, Audible is issuing a challenge to current and new members. Finish three audiobooks by March 3rd and get a $20 Amazon credit. It's that simple. Finish three by 3-3 and get $20. How easy is that? There's nothing to enter. Audible will keep track of your progress for you. Look, I've already ordered a bunch of books recently. Range, Catch and Kill, Accidental Presidents, and even a classic like For Whom the Bell Tolls. Audible has it all. Audible members can choose three titles every month, one audiobook, and two exclusive Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible members also get access to exclusive guided fitness programs to help start the year off right. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com floor or text floor to 500-500. Visit audible.com slash floor or text floor to 500-500. All right, Michael, it's time for us to shift gears. It's time for Giannis Inc. to lick its wounds. There's no question about it because Giannis had the worst shooting game that he's had in 12 months. Uh, the Bucks suffered their worst defeat of the season. Joel Embiid handily outplayed Giannis in the head-to-head matchup on Christmas. The Sixers tie a franchise record uh, with their three-point shooting. And all of a sudden, you know, it looks like Philly's got this championship formula that's coming at, uh, you know, Milwaukee and Giannis's expense. It was a painful Christmas for Giannis Inc. And it's funny because I had kind of forecast what an incredible opportunity or showcase moment this could be for Giannis. And his showcase actually came in that Lakers game earlier that you're describing with that crown maneuver, him hitting his (laughs) three-pointers, unveiling his improved outside shooting, you know, getting the the one-on-one head-to-head matchup victory over LeBron. That was the, the moment that I thought would come on Christmas. It just came a little bit early, and the actual Christmas game was such a bummer. So I guess my question is this, Michael, how much should Milwaukee overreact or overreact to this loss? Because it was a, a high profile environment against a major Eastern Conference rival, and it went about as poorly as they could have hoped. I, I'm not one to overreact to one game per se, but I feel like this is important in the, the, the journey that Milwaukee is, 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 is on right now to try to win the championship. I feel like this exposed some of their weaknesses, some of their flaws that they otherwise, that otherwise would not pop up uh, until they get to the playoffs and it's, it's too late. So, so you know, uh, put a finer point on that. Which flaws did you think got exposed? I think they need more play creation. To be honest, I think they need another ball handler. I think they need someone who can run a pick and roll with with I'm sorry with Giannis, uh, 
as the screener, as the roller. Uh, I think when Giannis feels like he's forced to go downhill and meet Joel Embiid at the rim because he can't create a jump shot by himself, when he can't draw help uh, off the three-point shooters and kick out to them because Philly's staying at home, uh, it's, it's troublesome. So, you know, they can really only go to one gear, I saw in that game. And granted, Philly made a lot of threes that Philly will probably not make again for the rest of the season but I thought the the big takeaway was just Milwaukee's weaknesses on offense that don't get exposed against most opponents yeah so on this one I am the image that circulates on Twitter with a guy who has a smiling mask and then behind the mask he's crying so my official (laughs) public stance if I'm the Milwaukee Bucks is that it's only one game it was a complete outlier shooting experience uh, from the Philadelphia 76ers uh, Giannis was dealing with some, you know, back spasms, and he played basically his worst uh, uh, game of the year. And you know, as the longtime Open Floor Glow members know, never judge players by their best day or their worst day, and that qualified pretty handily uh, as Giannis's worst day. And you could see it with his frustration, punching his fist, getting the technical foul, all that stuff in the second half. Um, that's my official my, my official public stance. My private stance, which I'm going to share publicly, and I know that's confusing, is that I, it was worrisome. Because I'd like the Horford move for Philly this summer simply because it would always keep a, a strong, uh, you know, interior defensive option on the court throughout an entire game against Giannis. You know, it protects you against foul trouble from your center, having both those guys there. Uh, it creates this big, bulky, you know, physically imposing front line, which is, you know, pretty much mandatory, I think, if you're going to stop or slow down Giannis. It seemed like the type of move that created philosophical questions for Philadelphia on a night-to-night basis, but that it would actually work out pretty well in a playoff format against Milwaukee. Now, I think Brett Brown said after the game that the Sixers are built for the playoffs, and that was a pretty compelling argument that that, that they were. Um, on the Embiid side of things, it was a real signature night for Embiid. I thought he did what I was kind of hoping Giannis would do, and he handily won it. I mean, there's no question... He outplayed Giannis uh, both offensively and defensively. After the game, he said that he wants to win the Defensive Player of the Year award and that people have, quote-unquote, forgotten about him. And I think kudos to Embiid, but I don't know if you agree with me, Michael. Has anyone forgotten about Embiid? Like, I feel like everybody knows he's this incredible talent who can have you know, a ceiling of MVP and Defensive Player uh, of the Year type of game. I think people are just, you know, rationally holding him accountable for the nights he doesn't play to that level. I don't think anybody forgot about Joel Embiid. Uh, You know, I wrote a column earlier in the season about how disappointing he's been and how the Sixers basically need him to overcome the structural flaws and limitations of their roster if they want to actually win a championship. I think defensively, he should always be in the conversation for defensive player of the year. There's no excuse for him not to. I mean, the guy entered the season out of shape. That's just what happened. And now he's kind of changing the narrative. I mean, heading into the season, he wanted to win MVP and defensive player of the year, which is something that, you know, I think Michael Jordan and Akeem Olajuwon are the only two players to do. And now the narrative has kind of shifted a little bit and he's more focused on the playoffs and he'll be he'll be a force in the regular season when his team needs him, whatever that means. I mean... I don't really necessarily agree that this team is built for the playoffs. I think that they need to shake things up, particularly on offense. They need to 
be more uh they need to enable Joel Embiid to uh they need to accentuate Joel Embiid's strengths is what they need okay. to do and Slow we've down. T- <laughs> don't beat around the bush here Michael you want Al Horford traded tomorrow don't you I think it's it's I don't think it's gonna work I just don't I, you know, I've watched the, their last five or so games, and all year long, whenever Horford's on the floor with Embiid, the offense is terrible. Uh, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. And uh, I just think the structural limitations are so evident when he's on the floor with Ben Simmons, who still will not shoot, and, and with Embiid, who is forced to shoot these contested twos, which he can make, which is wonderful. That's good for him. But... I want to see him in the post. I don't want to see him shooting step back, you know, threes from the right wing, which he did in a, in a loss, overtime loss against the Miami Heat. And he's smiling afterwards. It's like, this is not who you are. This is not who you need to be. So when I look at Horford's place there, I think Horford's a wonderful player. But, you know, heading into this season, you would talk to some people around the league and they were just a little baffled by the fact that Horford would want to go to a team where the best player plays the same position as him. It, it, it didn't make a lot of sense to some people. And right now we're kind of seeing that it makes no sense for the Sixers. And he's making a lot of money over the next few years. Trading him is going to be very difficult because moving a big who's 33 years old, who's making $28.5 million dollars, through the through his age 35 season for a wing who can make plays off the bounce or a guard who can run a pick and roll with Embiid as the roller uh you know those deals out there are really hard to find so I don't know I mean I have a couple fa- can I run a couple fake trades hypotheticals you, you can. let me just let me pipe in here real quick okay I hear what you're saying I think you're being a little bit harsh uh it makes sense to a certain degree because of who they need to beat in the Eastern Conference, right? Like if you're trying to construct a team to take down Giannis and to follow the Raptors model from the last Eastern Conference Finals, which basically is if you can neutralize Giannis, you'll win the series because their supporting cast guys will crumble to pieces, right? I think that center combination makes a good degree of sense. I don't think it's like nonsense or crazy, and I think you can stomach the pain on offense when those guys are playing together that you're describing in that matchup. Now, does that translate to a final scenario where you have to play uh, the Lakers or you have to play the Clippers? I think that's a totally different question, right? And it is difficult to envision a team with such a clunky main offensive group that the shooting has been definitely hit or miss and they look a lot worse when they're not hitting shots, right, than they did on Christmas. It's difficult to envision that type of team beating either the Clippers or the Lakers solely on the strength of their defense, right? So I think it, to me, is your argument that if they want to win the title like this year or next year, they just can't do it with this group? Is that sort of where you're drawing the line? Or do you think that they're an upset, uh, you know, upset potential earlier in the playoffs than that? I wouldn't be surprised. Whatever. I mean, this is an offense. The league is decided by pace and space right now. And I know that they're built unconventionally and their defense is, is, pretty good and and even great potentially with Horford and Embiid both on the floor but like you know they close a a recent loss against the Orlando Magic with Trey Burke on the court like what are we even doing here this is so it's like it's Brett Brown's admission (laughs) that Al Horford is not a, a, a workable player in a crunch time setting so 
when you pay someone that much money and your resources are allocated as such, like it, the pieces just don't fit. And, and you can't pay someone to be your insurance policy for Joel Embiid. That's wonderful during the regular season, but your aspirations are to win the championship. Unless you're going to just bench Horford and you know go to the buyout market and try to find someone who can run a pick and roll and shoot a three-pointer later in the regular season and you, you're fine benching Horford in the playoffs, like Gret's great, but I just do not think that they're currently constituted. They have an offense that's good enough to win a championship. And it's a shame because I think Horford's great and I think they're, uh, you know, they're, his skill set is mitigated on this team. He does not make he does not make Embiid a better player when both are on the floor, and it's 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 a, it's it's not going to get better with more minutes. I thought that they could work it out. The skill sets just do not fit together. So I would like to see a trade. May I please run by you my two fake trades that I'm you, sure you, you will you will approve of. Bring them on, but give me your one-sentence answer of where you would have signed if you were Al Horford this summer. So if I'm Horford, like, well, first of all, I think he, he I, I can't recall what exactly his response was when, when Point Blank asked if you knew Kemba Walker was going to be with the Celtics, would you have resigned? But he was not, I was definitely going to go to the, the Sixers no matter what, because he agreed early before free agency started. Uh, in one of those wink winks to go to Philadelphia after the debacle that was the Boston Celtics last season. So if if I'm him and I know that Kemba, if I knew Kemba was coming to the Celtics and I had an opportunity to sign, uh, maybe for not as much money, but I got to stay in, a, in an environment where I was comfortable with a coaching staff I trusted, with a, 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 a group that is super talented and improving annually, and Marcus Morris would be out of there and Terry Rozier would be out of there. Uh, I just I think that the Celtics made a lot of sense for him, and he could play the five, which is something that I mean I'm looking at it from a perspective of someone who's I see him where he's at his best. He obviously does not see himself as a center, and he never has, and he sees himself as a power forward. And the opportunity to play next to the best center in the league was something he thought was enticing. So I don't think he has any regrets, to be honest, and. That's fine for him. He's a wonderful dude and a wonderful player, but I think he probably should have signed with the Celtics. All right, let's get these fake trades going. Okay. The first one is uh, to the Sacramento Kings, which Horford will love, and it is uh, Dwayne Dedman, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and Justin James for Al Horford. So what you're really just trying to get is Bogdanovich to Correct. spice up the perimeter. I mean, that's the, the main goal there. Yeah. it's uh, They need some... They need they need shot creation. They need a pick and roll playmaker. They need a three point shooter. I think Bogdanovich could be on the court in you know game six, fourth quarter of the Eastern Conference Finals. Fine, uh, and Deadman's unhappy, so it just <laughs> it just makes a lot of sense to put him in a different situation as a suitable backup center. Um, yeah, and you have to get some money going back the other way. Sure. Uh, the other one is a little trickier. It's to the Chicago Bulls, another destination that Al Horford, I'm sure, would be really pumped about. Uh, Zach Levine and Thad Young for Horford, Thibel, and a protected first in 2022. Well, I think you're going to anger the Sixers fans by even <laughs> mentioning the word Thibel in that situation. I'm not sure if I would do that if I was Philly, man. Like, doesn't Zach Levine have the potential to bring this whole thing down? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, this is like a, a boomer bust type of move. 
uh, where, I mean, clearly this organization feels like they're on Embiid's body's timeline, and so might as well just push all the chips in right now. Well, I like how aggressively you're trying to tear apart the Sixers. I think that's <laughs> re- really on brand for you. I'm going to reserve judgment slightly on this uh, until we get a little bit closer to the trade deadline because we still got you know a month and change to, before we get there. Uh, but it's definitely one to monitor because if we're looking at you know which of these you know major Eastern Conference contenders could like really shake up their cores, you know I think that we're more likely to talk about. Uh, you know, can uh, Toronto, you know, dump some of their uh, veteran guys? We're more mm-hmm. likely to say, hey, can Boston go find, uh, you know, a new uh, big man in the middle to kind of upgrade? We're less likely to break up Philly's kind of star-studded starting lineup because, you know, so many moving pieces had to come together to kind of get those five guys together in the first place. Um, I do wonder if this whole thing is going to come down to like this was Elton Brand's vision, kind of like playing different, being weird, and he might want to just like ride this thing out. And if it doesn't work, he can just fire the coach. And I guess if I was Brett Brown, I might be more interested in the idea of an Al Horford trade than I would let on publicly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's another dynamic I think we should be watching here. For sure. I go back to him playing Trey Burke in crunch time against the Orlando Magic, which is something I will not get out of my head until the trade deadline. I th- thought that was an indicting move by Brett Brown and really said a lot about what he believes his team can accomplish on offense when Horford and Embiid are on the floor together. It's like a signal flare. Okay, let's move on to a couple of other teams that we haven't talked about yet that played on Christmas. Um, this week for my Washington Post newsletter, I put together my all-decade award. So I basically said, who's the most valuable player of the 2010s? Who's the best defensive player of the entire 2010s? It's a pretty fun exercise, a nice walk through uh, memory lane. I did it for all the major awards, uh, including MVP, uh, Coach of the Year, Executive of the Year, right on down the list. And I just mentioned Toronto a second ago. I don't know if this is going to surprise you, Michael, but when I was weighing the different options for executive of the year, I settled on Masai Ujiri as his executive of the year. And not that we saw that play out on Christmas, right? But I think if you're taking big picture stock of the Raptors, here's an organization that would never have been able to host a Christmas Day game five, ten years ago, right? Or, or whenever... Mm-hmm. Uh, Masai Ujiri first got there they're not even on the map they're known as kind of a backwater players don't want to play there it's a you know annoying travel and here they are trying to keep up with the Joneses in the player empowerment era when their big star player Chris Bosh decides to you know jump at basically the first opportunity the 2010s were completely defined by superstar level guys making their free agency decisions and the rest of the league kind of reacting to those decisions except Kawhi Leonard because the, the trade of the decade to me was Toronto uh, understanding that it was time to sell high on DeMar DeRozan, taking the gamble with Kawhi Leonard, who's kind of disgruntled, putting in place all the load management stuff to keep him happy and productive going into the playoffs and having that payoff with the title. If you had told anyone in the aftermath of Chris Bosh's departure in 2010 that the Raptors would win a title within the next 10 years, they should have laughed you out of the room, right? And so I think that goes straight to a bunch of really smart moves from uh, Masai, like I mentioned, DeRozan, uh, empowering Lowry, not trading him, fleecing the Knicks for Bargnani. 
And then the Raptors chapter is really only one half of his story because he built a, a consistent winner when he was in Denver too. Uh, you know, another team that had been off the map kind of before he got there. Uh, and, you know, he maybe restored them to relevance and, and swung another big trade involving Carmelo Anthony, which he also won. So when I'm looking at just his total body of work, yes, he didn't win as many titles as, say, a Pat Riley or a Bob Myers, but I think he's in a pretty comfortable spot as the executive of the decade. What do you think? I was surprised by this, and I, I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, Masai is obviously one of the best decision makers, um, deal breakers in the NBA right now, and could you know demand. We did a whole episode, or not a whole episode, but we did a section about what he could ask the New York Knicks to give him that was absolutely ridiculous but feasible also at the same time i mean he's incredible 30 30 million of gold bricks i think was my (laughs) initial request and i'm standing by that i i said he deserved 51 percent ownership of of madison square garden if he had to have a conversation over the phone with james dolan so (laughs) i think we're on the same page there um yeah masai has been tremendous i mean I think he's drafted a lot of just drafted a lot of really talented players in, in low slots. Uh, his ability to formulate uh, an, an incredibly impressive culture in Toronto. Forget about the trade for Kawhi, which is obviously uh, very impressive, but just you know having someone like Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Fleet uh, come out of uh, your G League program uh, is is great, and and I, I give credit to him for that. Uh, if I had to pick an executive of the decade, I would go with Bob Myers just because the Golden State Warriors were, I think, by far the team of the decade. And he, I think he gets a lot of credit for not wanting to take the credit, if that makes any sense. I think his humility and his lack of ego were so fundamental to Golden State's success throughout the last half part of the decade. Uh, you know, he drafted Draymond, he drafted Harrison Barnes. Uh, not trading or, or refusing to trade those guys for someone like Kevin Love, which is a deal that we don't, a hypothetical deal that we don't talk about that could have shifted everything over the last five, six, seven years uh, had he committed to uh, that trade. Um, uh, you know, obviously swinging the three teamer for Andre Iguodala, hiring Steve Kerr. Uh, courting Kevin Durant and just managing all of the grandiose personalities until they inevitably combusted uh, last year uh, in Los Angeles. But Bob Myers just did a terrific job. Uh, they won uh, every year, basically. Uh, yeah, after I mean, t- three t- titles and five finals yeah. is tough to uh, argue against. I guess what I was kind of weighing this, I was like, all right, well, the most important people in Golden State, I would say Curry obviously, then Durant once he got there, uh, Kerr. And then I think the ownership group was super, super important as well in terms of just their you know, willingness to spend everything and to turn that into a destination. Uh, when I look at kind of how the Raptors got built up, and of course they didn't sustain the same heights, but like don't we go back to that, uh, you know, the infamous rally where Masai is just yelling like, F Brooklyn. Like isn't that kind of one of their defining moments? Like I feel like his personality, his confidence, his swagger – and just his vision for what the Raptors could be defined the entire organization. Like he was the leading light for everything they were doing. I mean, of course, Lowry's an all NBA level player for multiple years. DeRozan's capturing this new Canadian fan base and everything else down the list. But uh, I just think he maybe had a more prominent role in their rise. 
than say Bob Myers did, uh, you know, and, and like you're saying, maybe that some of that is by, uh, you know, design because of, of Bob Myers' approach, kind of the humility side of things and, and playing, uh, you know, playing the, uh, the background. But uh, that's why I went with Masai. Hey, we can just shift right into the Warriors one, though, because on coach of the decade, I decided to give that to Steve Kerr, even though he didn't even coach until 2014. So he's at a little bit of a, uh, you know, a disadvantage compared to guys like, say, Greg Popovich or Carlisle or Eric Spolstra. So I'm guessing if you thought Bob Myers should be executive of the decade, do you also think Steve Kerr should be coach of the decade? I'm breaking my own rule here. I, I don't think Steve Kerr should be executive of the decade because he was only, as you said, coach for half the decade. Uh, so I'm giving it to Eric Spolstra. And wow. I think that the four straight finals that he went to at the beginning of the decade in an environment that was more harsh, uh, I think more pressure packed than any in NBA history. If you want to go back and relive those times, they were, I mean, the stakes were just through the roof, ridiculous for him from, I don't know, like the, remember when, you know, LeBron comes out of the timeout and, uh, you know, bumps his shoulder, how that was. Yeah, just I was going to say like, that was everything. Coach- would you rather be taking a charge from LeBron, right? Because he's so angry and he's like <laughs> steamrolling through you. Or would you rather try to play like UN peacekeeper between Draymond and Kevin Durant? <laughs> like both of those situations are really not envious. Yeah. The moral of the story is being an NBA head coach is very difficult. Uh, I think after LeBron left Miami, the way he's navigated that with, you know, Pat Riley made some win now decisions that have really backfired and I think Spolstra has weathered it as good as any head coach could have he routinely squeezes the most talent out of his players he routinely puts guys in positions where they can succeed Uh, I feel like he is set up when Greg Popovich retires to replace Popovich as you know the culture setting face of the franchise uh, head coach in the NBA and he's already going to be in the Hall of Fame this decade solidified that for him and I, I just think he's such a great tactician and if you give him another all-star caliber player the Miami Heat would be a contender yeah I, I hear you he's got to be on the short list for uh, the decade and I, I really appreciate that you're not falling into recency bias with that one because of course uh, when everyone's doing these lists and these debates, the last, you know, the, the, the post-Warriors era definitely gets more consideration than the pre-Warriors era. And, you know, if you're saying for a 10-year time period, that's not necessarily fair. So I, I like your nomination there. We've got a couple more of these to get through here really quickly. Uh, an emailer to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. His name is Lucas, and he writes, Jokic's numbers in December, 52% from the floor. 40% from three, 85% from the free throw line. If you throw out the Knicks game where he only had six points because the Nuggets won by 37, he is averaging 26 points a game. I think it's time to stop talking about Jokic like he is still struggling. And it's funny because the Nuggets kind of did the same thing the Rockets did, right? Which is uh, they have this opportunity on Christmas to sort of rewrite the narratives or to to do what Philly did and say, yes, we're inconsistent, but when it really matters, we're going to step up and do it. And instead, both the Rockets and the Nuggets kind of laid eggs on Christmas. Uh, and yet, I find myself agreeing with Lucas, Michael. I mean, what do you think? 
The Nuggets, I believe, as of this taping, are still the number two seed in the Western Conference. They're not that far behind the Lakers. Uh, Jokic is you know, certainly coming on, and to me, he's going to be a no-brainer all-star by the time you know voting is done. Are people sleeping on or killing the Nuggets a little bit too much? Has there been an overreaction uh, based on, I don't know if you want to call it Jokic's body fat percentage or whatever other factor that's sort of the headline in the discussion about Denver? I think so. Uh, I mean, I was never too concerned with the Denver Nuggets. I thought Jokic would come around once he got in shape a little bit and became more confident in his shot. And um, I mean, their offense has been terrific over the last two weeks. It's been number two in the NBA, which is really saying something because they really struggled in the early going. Their defense has faltered a little bit, but it's still top five as of this taping. Uh, I mean... It's really interesting when you just look at how this team is, uh, uh, how Mike Malone is kind of navigating things with Michael Porter Jr. and fitting him into the rotation and how great he's been playing uh, and, and how much of a variable he is going forward for them. I mean, I, I, I still am a little weary to think that this Denver Nuggets team can win four playoff series in a row, but uh, Jokic kind of picking Wait. it up. Four playoff series in the same playoffs? They're not winning four playoff series in a year. I mean, maybe in the next two or three years combined. There you go, right there. <laughs> so, so we're on the same page. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't think that they're going to win the championship this year. Uh, and uh, and so that's kind of, you know, if you head into this season with those expectations, as I think they might have internally, that's disappointing. But Jokic has been great, and he's just so much fun to watch again. And, uh, and yeah, he's, he's, he's terrific. So I, I have nothing bad to say about Nikola Jokic. Yeah, I, I'm with, Lu- yeah, I'm with Lucas. It's time to update the, uh, you know, the talking points, the narratives about the Nuggets. Like Jokic got off to a slow start. There's no question. He is still an all NBA level player. Uh, he's still a phenomenal playmaker, uh, an incredible offense, uh, he's still the leader of a really good team. I think the one thing to watch out for, though, is uh, you know Denver's record right now is spiked a little bit by an imbalance between home games and road games. Uh, so they may not be quite as good as their record. You know, if they do finish the season as a two seed, I guess I would be impressed um, by that. I think you've got two teams with the Clippers and the Rockets that have some upward momentum uh, because the Clippers are now mostly back healthy, and with the Rockets, you know, you've got. Uh, you know, Eric Gordon coming back uh, from injury as well. So I think Denver's going to be trying to keep those teams off their heels, you know, kind of no question about it, but uh, they deserve less scrutiny, less criticism than they've gotten. Now, with that being said, Michael, my final takeaway is that, and this is pretty <laughs> rude, uh, Denver did not deserve to be on Christmas, period. Okay. They had a nice, uh, you know, playoff run last year. They've got a very entertaining player in Jokic and another one in, in Jamal Murray, who's on the rise. They have, uh, you know, a deep and talented team. But the schedule makers screwed this thing up. And it's not just because of the Zion Williamson injury factor. What they should have done is hedge their bets. They should have said, look, we can't build an entire Christmas Day game around one young prodigy in Zion Williamson because there is this injury potential. We need to make sure we've got both of the major young prodigies in the same game playing against each other. That way, if one gets injured, you're still covered with the other one. Of course, I'm describing Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks. 
That was one of my biggest takeaways from Christmas is how was this guy not on the holiday showcase? They should have had the Pelicans play against the Mavericks. It would have been perfect if everyone was healthy, but even without Zion, you would have had the buzz and the electricity factor that that follows Luka everywhere now uh, to kind of, uh, you know, juice your ratings a little bit, but also just build interest in that game. You know, Luka was here in Los Angeles over the weekend uh, for like his 73rd game against LeBron James this season, it feels like. He did not play well, but the atmosphere of the Luka mania stuff is a real deal. Tons of cameras out watching him before the game. Fans with his jerseys, his his basketball cards, uh, you know, Mavericks gear, trying to get his autograph before the game. Uh, high fives and Slovenian trash talk with Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant's daughter wants a picture with Luka. He's a genuine phenomenon. He's got the new Jordan brand deal. He needs to be on Christmas, period. Like you need to just pencil in the Mavericks for Christmas for, I would say, the next eight years. Decade. Yeah. De- decade. So if I'm going over under, Michael, on how many consecutive Christmas appearances we want for the Mavericks, what, what are you saying? Over under 7.5. You say over? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, at least I would put it at 10, to be honest. I mean, it's all dependent on Luca's health, right? Like, if he tears his ACL, then that's a bummer, and we don't want to see the Dallas Mavericks and Chris Dasporzingis if he's still on the team. Uh, but otherwise, like, Luca's just, he's must-see television. He's the guy who the casual fan gravitates towards, who wants to see thrive, who wants to see do all the wonderful things that he's able to do as a 20-year-old, an unprecedented 20-year-old. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it was disappointing that, <laughs> that Luca did not get to play on Christmas. I'm still kind of scratching my head about it, to be honest. I'm right there with you. Uh, and he's just he's just a phenomenal basketball player. My pledge to the Open Floor Globe in 2020, my New Year's resolution is to ramp up the Luca hype by a factor of like 400%. Okay, because watching Luca, Kobe, and LeBron, you get this sort of like past, present, and future vibe uh, going on at Staples Center. And like I said, Luca did not play well. He took a hard fall, kind of banged his head, did not you know shoot the basketball particularly well. Dallas's incredible offense kind of crumbled to pieces, uh, you know, on a back-to-back uh, against the Lakers. And yet, the flashes are just mind-blowing. They're spectacular. The touch passes, the no-look passes, uh, the ability to create a shot, get into the paint, beat his first defender, keep his head up, survey the defense. It's all so elite. His feel, uh, his confidence. Uh, I mean, there's comparisons you can make to LeBron, you can make to James Harden. I even think sometimes with his desire to have the ball in his hands uh, and, you know, to want to take big shots, I do think there's a little bit of Mamba to him. Just, you know, just a tiny little bit of Slovenian Mamba, uh, you know, coursing through his blood. So, uh, you know, we need to do our part here on this podcast, Michael, to elevate Luca even more than he's already elevating himself. So that's my pledge to the Open Floor Globe in 2020. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful and admirable of you, Ben. I, Speaking of wonderful and admirable, I want to plug a piece that I recently wrote about Luca and his pick-and-roll partnership with Chris Dasporzingis, which has been uh, almost non-existent this season. But when they do hook up as pick-and-roll partners, it's usually incredibly successful. And uh, you know, it, it's very difficult to defend. I don't. There's really no strategy once they get the chemistry down together. So it's like as good as Luca has been. 
he still has another level to go with his most talented teammate and it's really scary and I can't wait to see how they they do in the playoffs like Luca in the playoffs is something that like the let your imagination run wild with that one because it's going to be so much fun yeah so I actually think he's going to be in for a rough go in his first playoffs I wouldn't be surprised at all if Dallas goes out in the first round but I think it's going to be one of those things where like he tastes his own blood on that stage and he just comes back with a vengeance next year Uh, I just worry a little bit about his supporting cast whether that offense uh, you know has enough proven players who are going to be able to hold up in the in the you know postseason scrutiny and I know defenses are just going to throw the kitchen sink at Luke I trust his playmaking there I just don't fully trust his very quirky and and fun supporting cast and I frankly I don't totally trust Porzingis in the playoffs either but I think that's beside the point I mean these guys are riding an incredible wave right now I like to talk about teams that are cute stories I think they're basically the (laughs) cutest story imaginable right now I encourage everyone to watch their games night to night Uh, they play entertaining unselfish free-flowing, shot-jacking basketball. Uh, It's lots of fun to watch. Hey, Michael, we've gone through nine of our post-Christmas takeaways. There's one team left we have not really discussed, and that's the Houston Rockets. But guess what? The the Christmas takeaway for the Rockets is if you lose (laughs) to the Warriors year after year after year, and then you lose to them again on Christmas, we don't even pretend to say nice things about you we don't even bother with the generic praise or the the qualifying of oh it's a one game sample size or anything else like that we just sit here disappointed shaking our heads uh you know face palming everything else and uh you know we'll we'll punt all future rockets conversations until like two weeks from now once eric gordon's back up and running but until then houston we're just silently shaking our heads at how you performed on christmas and we're especially side-eyeing you, Russell Westbrook, for your incredibly inefficient night. I have no qualms with that. That was, I guess, as embarrassing as it gets right before. I mean, in our Christmas preview episode, we were talking about how Harden could go for like 90 points in that game. And uh, that did not happen. <laughs> he did not go for 90. I think I jokingly said, now that we've hyped up Harden so much, watch them go out and lose the game. That was a complete joke, not a prediction, but it turned out to look like a pretty accurate prediction. One final footnote, Brandon Ingram absolutely killed it for the Pelicans on Christmas Day. Uh, True or false, Ingram secured the max contract bag with his Christmas performance, or was it already secured? Oh, it was already secured, yeah. I mean, that, that, that performance basically had me thinking about which young players I would rather have over Brandon Ingram, and the list is very, very small. He's he's a special player. Yeah, it had me thinking about that same list, and Luca was on it, and I just kept thinking, I wish I was watching Luca right now. And that's a little bit sad. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pelicans fans, but that's where I'm at. Hey, Michael, we made it through another episode. We will be back later this week. Um, once we're in the new year officially to kick things off for 2020, until then, please email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com let us know your takeaways your new year's resolutions and everything else that's on your mind here during the holiday week michael they can also find us on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word i'm on instagram at ben.goliver on twitter at ben goliver and be sure to sign up for my washington post newsletter the post up newsletter you can find the link at the top of my twitter page 
Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. Hey, Michael, until later this week, I'll talk to you. See you soon, Ben.